if you're already seated, congratulations. I hope it's good and comfortable. Are you excited to be in God's house this morning? Well, we're doing an 11 o'clock service. This is the first time, thank you, Pete, in about a year that we've broadcasted at 11 o'clock. So we'll see how the people who are normally used to uh, getting done by 10 do, because uh, it's 11.30 already, and uh, we're going to, with an 11, a 9-11 service, we have a little bit more freedom, don't we? Uh, so li- the, the, the plan is, Lord willing, that at the end of the service, we're going to respond with worship. We got to sing a, a, an extra song this morning. Um, your worship team was able to like take a breath and get a snack in between services. We like this rhythm, so we're, we're enjoying that. We hope that it works for you too. We're not a consumer-driven church, but if there's a way that we can help you be here to worship, that is in our hearts to do. If you're joining us online and there's a way we can help you with that as well, we just want to see the people of God gathered in houses and homes and in this sanctuary together to see what God would do. So let us know. Again, we're not trying to meet every consumer need, but we are trying to make a way for people to join us. So please, please do that if possible. Uh, another thing is we are committed to the presence of God in small groups, and uh, small groups started this week, and I don't know if you're a part of those or join them, but there's still some room in some of those. So if you have not had a chance to do small group, please sign up for one of those this week. If you have done small group and you want to learn how to make disciples, you can do that. If you're at home and you're part of New Covenant and you haven't been able to be here for whatever reason, but you want to make disciples, you can do that over Zoom. It's not ideal, it's not lifelong, but it is an opportunity that we have right now. So please don't let any excuse get in the way of that. If you want to be trained to be a disciple maker, we have a, a small group for that as well. We just want people to be able to have an opportunity to see and to know and experience Jesus. And we know that we can't make disciples just in here. We know that we make those in small groups, one-on-one, when we share life together. Uh, and so we want to give every opportunity for that to happen. So uh, when I was a little boy, I was told a joke. And the joke was this. I don't know how many of you remember it. It's, uh, did you know that they took the word gullible out of the dictionary? Well, here's the thing. I don't know if it was because I was super earnest or I didn't know what the word gullible meant, but I didn't know it was a joke. And so I love to share facts, and I just shared it as fact for several years. I was telling a joke, and I didn't even know it. I was literally the gullible one. And that's a little bit embarrassing to say, but uh, we all have those things when we don't understand what's happening around us. And that was not just the only time that I missed a joke, right? Like, do you remember when you were little and people told you jokes to just repeat and you had no idea what you're saying? Like, this was my first joke. How do you make a handkerchief dance? You put a little boogie in it. I just thought, you know, boogers go in handkerchiefs. I didn't know that it was a joke, right? But everybody laughs, so I'd say it. Or, why do cows have bells? Because their horns don't work. Right? Like, we teach these jokes that maybe even kids, like, they just repeat, but they don't know what it is. And this kind of became a theme for my life where in high school I was accused of not being very funny or being a little bit humorless. I didn't, I didn't know that, that how to tell a joke. Uh, and I love to laugh, like... I really do like a good joke, but here's what it looked like in high school. I've told some of you this before, but my friends uh, had a very interesting sense of humor. It was, you know, a young man, teenage boy sense of humor. And we'd be joking around, and, you know, someone would tell a joke, and another one would kind of pile on, and we'd keep going. But almost every time that I would add something to the joke that I thought was pretty funny, they would all just stop and stare at me. In fact, it got to be such a thing that, that, like, they would say pull, you know, like when you're shooting guns, like skeet, they'd, you know, pull and you, you flick it out and they, they would say pull and they go, 
And they'd say, Hamlin, you killed the joke. And it got so regular that they would just, they wouldn't even like, say, you know, do the whole thing. They'd just say, I'd, I'd talk and they'd say, pull. <laughs> and so it got to the mo- th- this place where I just, I, I didn't think I was very funny and I didn't think I would ever be able to tell a joke. Now, if my friends are watching this, uh, you have to understand, their sense of humor was a little bit idiotic. <laughs> little bit. And here's how I knew that it wasn't my problem necessarily, it was just a different type of humor. Because I was sitting at a table in my college uh, dining hall with a group of friends that I had made who were honor students. Like, like th- we had an honors floor, like they all lived on the honors floor. These were really, really intelligent people. I don't know how I ended up with them, but I ended up with them. We were hang- we'd hang out a lot, we'd sit in this like little, you know, alcove, uh, I'm a total geek, but this alcove, we'd eat dinner together frequently. And I remember, I, I realized that I actually knew what humor was when one of them cracked a really funny joke about Nikita Khrushchev and the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the whole table erupted, and I'm like, I got that joke. That was really funny. It was deep. It was inspiring. It was, like, worthy of a laugh. It was something that actually made you think a little bit. And I, like, I'm like, hey, maybe I am funny, and my idiot friends just didn't know good humor when they heard it. Now, here's the thing. Uh, up to that point in my life, I oftentimes missed the joke. I remember being at a retreat once, and the speaker named Sam Farina, who we've reconnected with maybe 25 years later, he's spoken at this church about coaching and disciple making. He was, he was speaking at youth retreats at that point, and after the service, I went up, and he was talking to one of my friends, and um, you know, they were talking, and I, they seemed like they really knew each other, and I don't know how it came up, but I'm like, how do you, how do you know each other? And he said, oh, Paul and I go way back. I've known him for years. Well, I didn't realize that he had just met him two, min- two minutes before, and that was a joke. It took me like three years to figure out that, that you know, I've known him for years was a joke. I just, I didn't always catch it because my framework was being very earnest, right? Like, I, I didn't always catch when people are messing around with me. And here's the thing. Our frameworks, our mindsets, our philosophies do that for us. We process the information, sometimes the jokes that people tell, and we process them in such a way based on our experiences, based on our personality, based on what's happening around us, and oftentimes that causes conflict because we are not wired the same as the people we live with and hang out with, right? Just like, you know, my friends from high school would not have understood in any way, shape, or form a joke about Nikita Khrushchev and the Cuban Missile Crisis, I didn't understand when they were being funny telling fart jokes. And so we, this happens often in our lives. Like, think about it, husbands and wives, right? You have different frameworks, different philosophies, and so like when you, when you have a different framework, let's just say on family, or marital relations, or the food you eat, or how to clean a house, or how to make a bed, or, I mean like, these are different frameworks, and you could come into the same discussion, probably have the same goals in mind, but still argue because you misunderstand each other because you're coming from different frameworks, right? We've all experienced that. The same is true with kids, right? Ultimately, Kids, when they're young, are very selfish, most of them. There's a couple sweet ones, but like most of them are selfish, right? And by adults, by the time we become adults and have children, hopefully having children and becoming adults has removed some of that selfishness from us. And when you come into a situation where you're with your kids, you have a different framework about what's happening, right? And generally, they want what they want. They think small picture, how do I just get this next thing? And you're thinking big picture, like for their life, you know, what, what, what's going to be best for them. You have their best interests in mind, and you see a little bit more holistically, hopefully, what it's like. And it creates this clash. So you're talking, and you're not really understanding each other. It happens in our 
country with politics. I'm not going to go there, but just by way of illustration, think about this. Republicans and Democrats in a two-party system where we've been, people have been calling for unity in this time. But the question is unity over what? How do you bring two different people together with different philosophies about the way the government should work and shouldn't work and what the government should do and be responsible for? Just different philosophies of the way it works. And when you call them to unity, they don't, they're both saying something different. They're saying, you unify with me over my philosophy, and the other one's saying, well, I want to unify with you over my philosophy, and they come into conflict, and we don't know what to do. Unity over what? We don't have a united front on many things. Sometimes our frameworks help us to miss what's going on around us. Our framework, our mindset, our philosophy will always determine the interpretation of what Jesus is doing and saying around us. Spiritually, we process what's happening with God from these different frameworks. And here's the great news. Jesus is very committed to taking those frameworks and breaking them down. And I don't mean like coming in and being a bully and smashing them, although sometimes he does that. We've had those moments where like everything shook and I don't know what's going on. That We've experienced some of those in this last year. But the, the, the really incredible part about our Savior is that he loves to break those down. He's very good and gentle and to the point to help us to see and process what he's saying so that we're on the same page with him. How many of you know being on the same page with Jesus is good? Right? When he says something, to be able to receive it the way he's saying it is healthy and it's good because he wants us to be able to see him. He wants us to be able to follow him. He wants us to experience, because he's good, the fullness of his good kingdom. And he does that by breaking it down. Let me, let me explain that. We're, we're preaching through a series called The Divine Invitation. And in this, we're talking about the divine invitation that Jesus gave his original disciples. You can turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, because we're going to read starting in verse 45. And in John chapter 1, we see that Jesus is inviting his very first disciples to, be, to see him, to follow him, and what we're going to talk about today. At first, he says, come and see. Just, just come and see. And we, we understand that it's really important for us to see who he is. He doesn't ask us to go all the way in before we get a, a good visual of what's happening. But oftentimes we don't see well, so he says, come and see. See me. And he also invites us to intimacy. Come and follow him. And that's ultimately a, 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 an invitation to be with him. He's bringing us to a place of intimacy where we really do see him for who he is, but we, we know him, we're with him, we experience his presence. And the invitation we're going to talk about today is the invitation to power. But it comes to, in, in a sense, in a way where somebody's not catching everything that Jesus is saying, and there's different frameworks that are happening, and Jesus very gently says, I want you to see what this looks like, I'm going to bring you into my framework, into my philosophy, into my understanding. Starting in verse 45 of chapter 1 of John, here's what it says. Philip, who's already received the call to be a disciple, went to look for Nathanael, and he told him, I have found the very person that Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. As they approached, Jesus said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me, Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus asked him, 
Do you believe this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth. You will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and coming down on the Son of Man, the one who is a stairway between heaven and earth. God, may we see your invitation to power today. May we not only see it, hear it, but may we receive it and respond to it according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Philip comes to Nathaniel and he says, we have found the one. He said, this is the one that the scripture, the very one the scriptures point to. He's basically saying, listen, everything that we've been trained for, everything that we've read, all the, the, the things that we have given our lives to studying in expectation of the Messiah, he said, we found him. And Nathaniel kind of perked up at that moment because he obviously knew what the scriptures were. He, Philip was referencing those, and so he's saying, okay, great, like, tell, me, tell, me, tell me about this. Show me how it's fulfilled. And, and Philip says, his name is Jesus. And that would have been, okay, okay great, like, that means the Lord saves, like, I get it. And he's Joseph's son from Nazareth. And it's like, at that moment, Philip lost Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says this, he says, because Philip is testifying in a way that, like, I, I've read the scriptures, here's what we got, but he's inviting Nathaniel to come and see the Messiah without fully understanding Jesus' divinity and power. They would get there, they would understand it, but right at this moment, they hadn't seen it fully. So Nathaniel responds, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, that, we could read that in our modern interpretation and say, that's kind of a diss, it's like saying, can anything good come from Buffalo? Can any good sports teams come from Buffalo? Right? Or, you know, can any good economic sense come from Buffalo? Like, we were a th city that was thriving, but we have a reputation right now of not being, we all live in the greatest city in the world, can we just, right? Okay, great. But we have a reputation with people outside of Buffalo, right? And it, we could view what Nathaniel's saying like, hey, can anything good come from Buffalo? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. Nothing in the scriptures that point to Jesus, who you just said, fulfilled all these scriptures, say anything about being the son of Joseph from Nazareth. It doesn't make sense. The, 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 the Messiah is not supposed to come from Nazareth. And so what does Philip say? Philip says to him the same thing that he was invited to do. Come and see. Already we see the, the rhythm of disciple-making being repeated here. Come and see. Oftentimes we think that we have to have it all figured out. If we're going to present Jesus to somebody, like we're convinced this is the Messiah, this is who Scripture points to. When, when we encounter somebody, we're so convinced, and when we share that with them, they don't respond like we think they should respond. We have this angst in that moment. What if they don't hear what I'm saying? What if they don't respond the way I think they ought to? Like, I've got to finish the deal. But the truth is this. All we have to do is come and give people an opportunity to be in front of Jesus and see him for themselves. We do that by inviting them to church. We do them by inviting them to small group, to come over to our house for a meal. To, but we also get to not just invite them to that. We get to demonstrate Jesus. We ought to be demonstrating Jesus to the people that are around us. Because if they will just see him, they will get to know him. They will understand the call to follow him themselves. But sometimes we need to get ourselves out of the way. And so Philip says, why don't you just come and see Nathaniel? 
And so Jesus, or Nathaniel approaches Jesus, and Jesus gives this incredible assessment of Nathaniel. As he approached, Jesus says, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How many of you know that Jesus' assessment is a pretty good assessment? How many of you ever had a, a, a performance review at, at, at your job? Do you have to sign off on them, right? Like, do you agree that this, this is how you're performing? And you're like, I don't want to sign that because you missed a bunch of stuff, right? Like, you, you're just saying, you know, I was late twice, but you don't see the extra hours I put in or the heart that I, do you know what that guy's doing over there? At least I'm better than that guy. Like, we, people don't always see us really well, but how many of you know if Jesus does an assessment of you, probably worth signing off on? Right? It's accurate. And so Jesus gives this great assessment of Nathaniel. Somebody said once that, that they prophesied over my life that I had the spirit of a Nathaniel. And I didn't like it because I thought Nathaniel was snarky because I thought he was being snarky about Nazareth. And I thought he was being untrusting because he's like, you know, how do you know me? Because that's what he says next. But I love, as I've dove into this, I love the heart. Like Jesus literally comes and gives this assessment. A true son of Israel, man of complete integrity. In other words, he's saying, listen, all of the scriptures that you have been studying and waiting for Messiah, like in demonstrating what it's like to be God's people in the earth, that's the call of Israel. Nathaniel is a true son of Israel. He's fulfilling that. And he's a man of complete integrity. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty high assessment. And so Nathaniel says to Jesus, kind of like we do in Buffalo, like, how do you know me? Like, whoa, hold up. Right? Like, we're good. Like, once we get to know people, once we know they're not trying to, like, scam us, we'll, we'll dive all the way in. But it takes us a little while to do that. And Nathaniel's like, how do, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And what is his response? All Jesus said, I saw you. And Nathaniel goes from, can anything good come from Nazareth? How do you know me? To... What's his response? Look at it really quick. Rabbi, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Does that seem like a large jump to you from kind of like, whoa, hey, slow down, buddy, to like, I'm all in. But that's what Nathaniel did. He responded in faith to Jesus. That's how I know that Jesus' uh, assessment of him was accurate. You're a true son of Israel. You, you have been looking at for Messiah. You've been wanting to live this thing out. And so when, he, when, when, when his faith hits a very small understanding or a very small miracle, he's all the way in with Jesus. Because it wasn't just a momentary thing. It was like a deep thing that had been stirring in his heart for a while. And so Jesus said, did you believe just because of that? And then he gives him an open heaven promise. Look at verse 51. He said, I tell you the truth. You will all see. He's not just talking to Nathaniel. He's talking to everybody that's there including us as his disciples. You will all see heaven open. And the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Kind of ha has that similar language to what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is actually the disciples' prayer. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And he said, when you pray, pray our fathers in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We cannot pray that outside of Jesus. I mean, we can ask for that, but literally, Jesus is the stairway between heaven and earth. He says, open heaven, come to earth. God's will in heaven, upon the earth, through his people, through his presence, because of what Jesus has done. And so, 
we see that there's this invitation to the miraculous, right? You saw a little bit of miraculous that changed you, but I'm telling you, you're going to see an open heaven. And we saw that in the ministry of Jesus. We see that in the ministry of Jesus. The lame healed, the deaf healed, the dead raised. Those who are far off being brought into the kingdom. Salvation breaking out everywhere he goes. Thousands of people fed, walking on water. I mean like transformed into the glory of God. We see all these things. And Jesus says you're going to see even more. You're going to see what it looks like for heaven to invade earth. You're going to see what it looks like for to live under an open heaven. Because of what he's done. And so Jesus further defines this in Acts chapter 1. You can turn there. This is where we're going to land today. You're like, you're just landing? Like, take it easy. You know how, like, when you land, you think you're done, but then you got a taxi to the gate, and, okay, just... In, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus further defines, like, the promise of what this looks like. He's ministered, he's shown them what it looks like, he's died, he's resurrected, they've seen the miracle of that, and they're hanging out with him, and Jesus is like, here's how it's going to continue. It says in verse cha- ver- chapter 1, verse 4, once when he was eating with them... He commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They're not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus gave them a refocus when they had a question on the power that he wanted to pour out. He says, this is what it looks like for the power of God to come to you. And so I want to look at that real briefly, just so I want to mention, what was the power, what did that look like? Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, it's worth reading, I'm not going to do it all this morning. But what happens is all the believers, some believers, take Jesus at his word, they don't believe, they don't leave Jerusalem. They stay in that place, and they're together gathered, and what happens? In, very early in the morning, the power of God breaks out. The Holy Spirit literally baptizes them, fills them up to overflowing. There's a sound of a mighty rushing wind. Flames of fire, what looks like flames of fire, come upon their heads, and they all start speaking languages they never understood, and everybody thinks that they're drunk. And yet Peter stands up in front of thousands, because 3,000 people come to salvation that day, and he, speaks, he preaches a very strong sermon. This is the guy that denied Jesus to a little girl. 3, 000, he stands in front of at least 3,000 people and says, you killed him. And the, the power of God moving through him cuts to the heart of the people, and they say, what must we do to be saved? Just imagine that for a moment. Just imagine that. A little bit later in Acts, it says the people the, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to the breaking of bread together and to sharing in the Lord's Supper and to fellowship, gathering in the temple for worship. And the Lord added to their number those daily who were being saved. What, what would it look like to experience the power of God where, how many of you know 3,000 in, in one sermon is pretty good for a preacher? But what about God adding to the number those who are being saved because we just simply are living with each other and living with God and living with his power in such a way? Just like, maybe even close your eyes for a minute. Think about the people that would come to the Lord. 
What would it look like, you know, for this year, daily, somebody else coming and somebody else coming? I mean, that's at least 365 people if we get one a day. But I know in this room there's more represented. How would God want to pour out his his power in such a way that we see that type of revival in our hearts? I believe we are coming into a time where we will see the greatest manifestation of his power. And it's not just for good church services. It's not because we get to gather again. So Jesus says you're going to receive power. Let's talk about, real briefly, I'm, I'm tempted to not tell you how many points I have. You'll, you'll get there. Because <laughs> I'm going to say them all. About what this power looks like. The first is this. Number one, power is not what we think it looks like. Jesus said you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. There's power coming, but what did the disciples interpret it as? Are you going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to free Israel and give the, king, give the kingdom to us? Now listen, that's not a bad question because there is, there is a national restoration of Israel right now. Like, all of Israel has been longing for that. And there's good reason for it. Because you cannot divorce what God is doing in the earth from his people or from his land. And we're seeing this gathering back in of his people into the land, which is setting up what God is doing in the earth today. There is a real sense that that is a huge part of it. And the disciples were asking that question because they understood that from Scripture and from prophecy, that God would restore the nation, that he would free his people. And so they're saying, listen, is it time for you to free Israel? Is it time for you to restore the kingdom and give it to us? Now we look at that and we're like, hey, you guys are really selfish. You just want the kingdom for yourself. Now there's an element of that that's true. But what about this? What about God's will and desire to give the kingdom to his people? That's how he rules. That's what lordship looks like, where he hands that out. Jesus had been spending time trying to get the disciples to understand. They were not just slaves in the kingdom. They were friends. They were those who would rule and reign over cities in the kingdom. And so it's a great question, not a bad question at all. But what does it look like for the power to come? It's not like we think. Revival is not the United States of America looking a certain way politically or even morally revival is the people of god pour, having the holy spirit poured out upon us and in us and through us and bubbling up so much that revival comes and people come into the kingdom they come under the lordship of jesus christ what does it look like it looks like signs and wonders and miracles it looks like some really weird stuff. Like, I don't know if you think about, like, how would you launch a religious movement, but you probably don't launch a religious movement where everybody around thinks you're drunk when you start. Right? You're speaking in tongues, and you got crazy sounds and flames of fire. Like, what? Are you, are you that snake-handling cult? Like, literally, the religious people of the day who had power, they treated them like a cult. They persecuted them, and tried to destroy them and wipe them out because this was wildfire. The truth is this, the power of God is not controllable. It looks like wildfire sometimes. We can't have our hold on it. We can't expect it based on our interpretation. Point number two, the power of God comes through humility. Andrew Murray wrote a book called Humility, and in it he says the chief virtue that we can have is humility. Why? Because in order to understand every other part of God, we have to understand who God is, and who we are before him. And it's not humility that thinks of ourselves as very lowly, or I'm just a sinner saved by grace. We are not just 
sinners saved by grace. We were sinners who have been saved by grace, who live with the power of God residing in us in the Holy Spirit. That's worth a like, yes, amen. Let me say it again. You and I are not just sinners saved by grace. We were sinners. We have been saved by grace. We exist and live now by the power of the Holy Spirit living within us. And the life we live, we live according to what? According to Christ, the power of Christ in us. That's a powerful statement, and we ought to know that. But it's not just thinking like that we know and we have everything together. Uh, Humility says, I don't have what God has said I should have. Humility is being willing to wait in Jerusalem until we receive the power. Not just, like they could have gone out, hey, we saw him ascend, we're going to go and do all this. And Jesus says, don't witness to me until you receive this. Humility says, I'm willing to wait to receive this because I don't have it yet. And if we're honest, we will admit that we are not experiencing the power of God like we ought to, like we read about in Scripture, like Jesus promised. We are not seeing an open heaven above us. We don't live like we have an open heaven. I'm not trying to beat us up. I'm just saying, let's admit it, and then we can let God do what he wants to do within us. We can start to build an expectation that God is going to move powerfully and supernaturally in our lives. The third is this, power comes through obedience. What do I mean by that? They were willing to wait. They were willing to wait. Jesus said, don't leave until the promise is fulfilled. Ten days between the ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the promise. You and I cannot be disciples of Jesus Christ unless he's our Lord. Nathaniel understood that. You're the Messiah, the King of Israel. Like King, king is a very important designation we call the we call jesus the lord and we just think it's like another name for god there's something very strong in calling somebody your lord if if i asked my wife to start saying yes my lord that's different than yes sweetheart or yes honey right you can imagine how that would go in our house But we are called to treat God, not just to call him Lord, but to treat him like he's the director of our lives. I'm reading a book right now called Kingdom Disciples by Tony Evans. I recommend it. In it, he, he says, you should, we should wake up every day and say, God, how, how can you be more Lord of my life today? What areas of my life do you want to have control over? Every area ought to be under his control. But as he progressively works us through that, we get it more and more. The disciples didn't have the lordship all the way down. They understood him as Lord, but God is gracious enough to take us where we're at and walk us through it. But he should become more and more progressively Lord, and it should become quicker and quicker, where it's very easy for him to direct us. He should have operational and directional control over our lives. Number four, power comes through waiting. We live in a microwave culture, don't we? We want everything right now. We are doing longer services. Do you realize you've been sitting here for nine more minutes than you normally sit here at the 11 o'clock service? If you're joining us online, you have been with us for nine more minutes, and you might be tempted to check out. You li- Maybe you didn't join us this week, and you're watching later because you're like, I like a 10 o'clock service, and I like it over by 1045 because I want to get on with my day, and it's already noon, and I'm ready for lunch. Like This is the culture that we live in. Like, and I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I've gone and visited churches, and I've sat in their chairs or their pews, and I'm like, these are not comfortable. I don't know if I can handle it. Like, one of the reasons I get to preach so long to you is because these are pretty comfortable chairs. Like, we judge everything through our consumer mentality. Like, maybe this isn't working for you. Listen, I saw a testimony this week of a man who was speaking in China. He, he was a, a Westerner who had gone to China, had gathered some leaders, and he was meeting with them. And I'll get the numbers wrong, but he said, I think there were maybe 20 people in the room. 
And these leaders had traveled from all over China, and they, they met with him secretly, and he was just trying to bless them. And he had brought Bibles with him, but he only had like 13, so he didn't have enough to go around. So he handed the Bibles out, and he taught. And he noticed at one point, one of the ladies took her Bible and gave it to another woman. And he said, hey, why, why did you share your Bible? That's, that's pretty awesome. She said, well, I've already memorized the portion of Scripture that you're teaching on. So I didn't need it, so I gave it to somebody else. He's like, you memorized it? She said, yeah, we have to memorize it because they, we don't have Bibles and they take them away. In fact, I memorized it in, in jail. And he's like, wait a minute, hold up. You were in jail and you memorized the Bible. Don't they like not let Bibles in jail? How'd you memorize it in jail? She said, well, people write it on scraps of paper and bring it into us. And, and, and he asked her, well, like, well, don't they find the scraps of paper and take those away too? She says, yes, they do, but that's why you have to memorize it quickly. And at the end of this talk, at the end of this day together, this training, he said, well, how can I pray for you? How can I bless you? And, and they, they said, well, would you pray that someday we would be just like you in the West, that we would have the freedom to gather and have Bibles so we can, we can have what you have. And the, the man that was there said, I will absolutely not pray for that. I will not. Because you traveled for days, by many means, secretly to get to this place. You sat on the floor all day long. You shared Bibles with one another. You have memorized scripture so that it's within your heart because people will take it away from you. He goes, you are dedicated to the gospel like we can't even imagine. He goes, I can't get people in my church for more than an hour. I can't get them to show up if the air conditioning is not the right set of degrees. He said, I won't pray that over you because we treat, we treat this like consumers. Will we wait? Are we willing to just wait? Like we pray, God, I prayed three times and you still haven't come through. I'm still hungry for lunch. Like, this, like we don't know what it's like to wait on the Lord. Can you imagine 10 days like right now, if I'm watching, a, 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 if somebody sends me a message or something like that or a prophetic word that people send me, like I can't get through the five minutes of intro that the people, like would you just get to the point? Because we want everything fast and now. I'm like, would you write it down because I can read it faster than you can talk. We want it now, but the Lord is saying, if we're going to receive this power, we have to be willing to wait on it. Five, I told you it's going to give you a lot. <laughs> power, power comes because of sovereignty. What do I mean by that? Sure, like we can be humble, we can wait, we can be obedient, but the truth is this. The power of God comes because God pours out his power. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to work it up. But here's, here's the reason why that's true. It's because it's his will. He just wants to. God's will for your life and for my life is we live under an open heaven. When we see what it looks like for the heavens to be open and the power of God to be poured out in every one of our lives. He told Nathaniel, all of you will see. In Jesus Christ, we all get to see. It's not for a certain sect. It's not for a certain group of religious people. It's not for those, like, even when we are not willing to, God still pours out in power. We see it all through the book of Acts. People aren't seeking after the power of the Holy Spirit. They're waiting in obedience in the beginning. But in other times, somebody's just talking, and they just get filled with the Holy Spirit and start speaking in tongues. And they're like, oh, wait a minute, I didn't tell you about that. What in the world? It's just God's confirmation. Why? Because God desires it. He wants to fill the whole earth with his presence. He made you and me to live with the presence of God in our lives, with him in our lives. 
We are created for this. And so he does it just simply because he wants to and because it's his joy and his plan for our lives. Six, power comes through gift. And here's the truth. The gift is not just something. It's himself. The gift is him. The gift is not ritual. He says in a, in a few days, or John baptized with water, in a few days you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. If he wanted to give us ritual, he would have just had us keep doing baptism. We do that out of obedience, but that's not the gift of power. God meets us in our obedience sometimes in that place. But the truth is this. The gift is himself. Prophetic word came forth this morning. I want to share it with you now. And here's what it is. It's buy gold now. This is not an advertisement, right? I'm not telling you to go out and buy GameStop. It's not like, you know, put your money in gold. But it's spiritual gold. What's the currency of heaven? The currency of heaven is mercy. And we don't know how to receive it, and we don't know how to give it. But this is the truth. When we've received it, we can give it away. We can't earn it, right? You can't earn mercy. It's not mercy if you, if you can earn it, right? You and I can't earn the currency of heaven, but we can receive it. And when we've received it, we can give it away. God is calling us to receive his mercy right now, the gift of his mercy. He's calling us to be merciful. If we want to see the power of God come through us, we need to start to be generous with grace and with mercy. Stop judging people by and ourselves by the natural outcomes, by a religious mindset. If I'm good, I'm, he's good to me. If I'm bad, he's bad to me. That's not how God operates. And so he wants to pour out the currency of heaven. Power comes through gift seven, and this is the last one. The worship team can come. We're on time for our new schedule, so everybody take a breath. Power comes for mission. Power comes for mission. You know, oftentimes when we think about the power of God, we think about a great service or an enlightening moment or maybe even a good word. Or maybe, our, maybe even our lives transformed, right? How many of you have experienced the power of God to transform your life? You were something, it was pretty bad, and God did something really spectacular to transform you. Like, I, I can say that, like, there's not a lot of dirt you can look up on me. Like, if, if they ask you, how, how was Josh the kid? He was pretty good. I'm telling you, on the inside, it was garbage. And yet God took me from a place where I was selfish and prideful and lustful. And he met me in that place and he transformed me. And he is still transforming me. He's doing miracles in me and he's doing miracles in you. But here's the thing. He doesn't do that just for you and for me. He does that. He pours out his power in his presence. He gives miracles, signs and wonders. He opens heaven for us so that he can fulfill his mission on earth. That's why he came. He came and there was an open heaven. Uh, He was the one. That angels were descending and ascending on. And the disciples watched that. But when he left, he left a mission for you and me. He left an open heaven for you and me. And it wasn't just an open heaven in the sense that like we had to come to Jerusalem to experience it. He said, I'm going to pour myself out upon you. I'm going to fill you to overflowing with me. And you're going to receive an open heaven. The, the kingdom of God, the, God's will in, on earth as it is in heaven in my people. In my people. 
Why? So he could accomplish his mission with us. He didn't pour out his spirit so that they could speak in tongues and hoot and holler. He poured it out so they would, you and I would be effective witnesses. From being afraid of a servant girl to preaching to 3,000. From kind of stepping back to stepping out in front of the 12 and saying, I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to tell you what's going on. From being intimidated. From having a personality. Peter had a personality that was all in, right? He's cutting people's ears off. He's walking on water. He's saying, you're the, you're the Messiah. He's saying, I'm not going to let you die. And Jesus like, is w- constantly working with this guy who's putting his foot in his mouth over and over and over again. How many of you know that is incredible news because God loves us so much? He's willing to use broken people like Peter. By the way, he was the only one that walked on water, so give him a break, right? And he might have sunk, but he walked back in the boat holding Jesus' hand. For mission. It wasn't just so Peter had some great stories to tell, like, yeah, I walked on water with Jesus, woo! It was so he could accomplish the mission of God, which is heaven on earth, which is the salvation of many. Think about it for a minute. It comes full circle. What would it look like for the salvation of many in your lives? That is God's will, and he's going to do it as he fills you with his spirit and uses you in, your, in the circle of influence he's placed you in. We are coming to a time individually and in this church and in this region and in the church of God where so much has been shaken that we are starting to see him for who he really is. Our blinders are coming off. He is inviting us to the greatest intimacy that we have ever known as we agree to follow him, to go wherever he goes. And he is bringing us to a time where he's going to pour out the greatest power we have ever seen. And it's a power to mission. The salvation of many. Daily, those being added to those who are being saved. He's calling everyone in this room, everybody who's watching online or even watching later, he's calling us to the greatest outpouring of his power. Would we just be willing to wait on it? You know, we have a choice this morning. We could say, hey, uh, it's a little longer. I'm gonna shut this off. I'm gonna check out. Or we can wait. Can we take a few minutes to wait on him? We plan for about 30 minutes extra in this service because we have the time to respond. I mean, I know it's exciting to sing a song at the end of service, right? But how about this? How about we take a position of receiving? Whether, I don't know, maybe you need to stand and lift your hands. Maybe you need to get on your knees before the Lord. You can lay. Listen, the altars are open. If you want to come to the altar, put your mask on. Stay six feet away from people. But we have the freedom to do this now. Let's respond to his call in our lives to open heaven. Let's start with humility and say, yes, we need you. In obedience, we're just gonna, go ahead, in obedience right now, just take that posture that's ready to receive. But change your posture. Don't just sit. Maybe if you're a couple, take hands together. Do something to say, God, I'm walking in obedience. I'm not gonna leave Jerusalem until I encounter you. This morning, I want to encounter you, Jesus. If you want to come to the altar, you're welcome to do that. There should be a bunch of people up here. Y'all have been telling me for months you want to be at the altar. Not working anything up, just responding to the sovereignty of God because he's willing to do it because he wants to do it because it's his joy. Microwave culture, so like God, you got 10 minutes to move and if you don't, like, was the preacher actually preaching or, you know. Here's the thing. 
Jesus gave the command to wait in Jerusalem. And then he, he ascended, so tradition about 10 days later. So I, I don't even know because it says once when he was with them, he told them that. I don't know how long they waited for it, but here's the thing. You won't miss him if you're waiting. You won't miss him if you're expecting. And so let what God has done in us today not just produce like, hey, get it done at the end of service and we all walk out and it's all started. Like, let it produce in your heart an expectation that you are going to encounter him like you've never encountered him before. You'll encounter his power. It's going to be on his timeline. It's going to be according to his purposes. It's going to be good. It is coming. But let's let the expectation that God has placed in our hearts continue. Because he told the disciples to do that. They still had to like eat and sleep and go about their jobs in Jerusalem. Like the, it wasn't like they had to just stop everything. But when they were together, God poured out his spirit. Let's expect when we gather, it will happen. Let's expect when we go to our quiet time, that it'll happen. Let's expect in our small groups an outpouring of the power of God like we have never known before. Let's leave this place with a heart of expectation. Let's sign off from watching this with a heart of expectation that God is going to fulfill his promise, that what Jesus said would happen, that we would all see heaven open, that we would all receive the baptism, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, that we would all be effective witnesses, that God would use us. Let's not walk away saying, well, it was all right, it was good, maybe God met you powerfully, but let's expect that he's going to do it and do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again, and he's going to bring us to that time those experiences where we see him like we've never seen him before, where we're intimate like we've never been intimate before, and we see his power move. Let's expect he's going to do it with us, for us, and in us, and through us, according to his will. God bless you.